Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 373 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of our special Poetry Break series, the poets Catherine Maris and our host Julia Copus discuss two favourite classic poems by Thomas Hardy, The Convergence of the Twain and The Voice. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copas, and here with me today is the American-British poet Catherine Maris. Catherine has published three collections and one pamphlet of poetry. Her poems have appeared in numerous anthologies, including the celebrated Penguin Modern Poet series, the Pushcart Prize anthology, and Best British Poetry. Kate Kellaway in The Observer has described her work as crisp, funny, lightly disturbing and sustaining. A selection from her 2018 collection, The House with Only an Attic and a Basement, won the Ivan Juritz Prize for Creative Experiment. She has reviewed new work for, among others, The Times Literary Supplement and Poetry Review, and she's currently working on a creative writing PhD at Durham University, with a focus on on narcissism. She is also a Royal Literary Fund Fellow at the City and Guilds of London Art School. Catherine, hello. Hi, Julia. Can you tell us which particular Hardy poem you've chosen and what it was that first drew you to it and perhaps uh, to Hardy in general, if that's relevant? So the poem I've chosen to discuss today is The Convergence of the Twain. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of Hardy's poetry generally, I came to it late um, because in the United States where I was educated, even if you do an English degree, you're unlikely to read Hardy's poems, though Mm. you will probably read his novels. Is he better known as a novelist? Yes, definitely. Better known as a novelist. Yeah. Interesting. And at my university, an English degree requires you to study individual periods like the Renaissance, Romanticism Mm -hmm. and the Victorian era. But Hardy's poems don't neatly fit into the Victorian period or the modernist period, though his novels are considered modernist. He influenced a lot of the poets that I read and liked, like D.H. Lawrence and Robert Frost. But Mm -hmm. I didn't really read Hardy's poetry until I was Derek Walcott's student at the MA program in creative writing at Boston University. But I didn't really take to it because I found some of the sing-songy music and Hardy's poems a bit twee and old-fashioned. Yeah, now I think that comes from his uh, background in the church singing hymns. Uh, He uses four-beat lines a lot and so on. And it can, I agree with you, it can sound quite sing-songy. That's interesting. I didn't know about the hymn influence. Yeah. Um, It's it's just in the past decade and a half that I've grown to really like some of his poems. And the poem that we'll be discussing came to my attention actually by way of Jamie McKendrick's poem Twain, which Uh appeared in his 2007 collection, Crocodiles and Obelisks. Mm -hmm. Someone pointed out to me that Jamie's poem was a nod to Thomas Hardy's poem, The Convergence of the Twain. So I read the Hardy poem for context. And then years later, when I got to know Jamie, 
he glossed Hardy's poem with me and helped me through some of the difficult vocabulary and syntax that my American ear was not so well attuned to. Yeah. Uh, yes, I would just say that um, I, not all English ears will be attuned to it because <laughs> there's some pretty old fashioned turns of phrase and uh, and also uses of normal words. But we'll, we'll talk about all of that. Yeah, yeah. So. so I think my enjoyment of this poem owes a lot to Jamie for his help. And for people not familiar with uh, Jamie's poem, is it is it very similar to Hardy's? Jamie's poem, like Hardy's, is about a freak encounter between man and nature. Yeah. In Jamie's case, it's a collision between a pheasant and a motorbike that resulted in a tragic death. Mm-hmm. And in Hardy's case, it's about the sinking of the Titanic. But they are very different poems in structure, vocabulary, and tone. Yeah. Jamie's poem is a sonnet as opposed to Hardy's 11-part poem in Tercet's. And Jamie's poem, um, despite being somewhat sardonic, is more concerned than Hardy's with the loss of human life that can result from a disastrous collision. Whereas Hardy, to me, seemed less interested in the loss of human life in his poem. Yes, I think you're right. Um, So it's what we sometimes call an occasional poem, isn't it? A poem written to mark a particular occasion, usually a, a public event. Um, in this case, as you said, the sinking of the ship Titanic in, in 1912. And I often think that occasional poems are usually not a poet's strongest work. Um, but Hardy treats this very public incident in quite an unexpected way. So we might expect a depiction of uh, grief and chaos, but he treats the whole event as some sort of predestined meeting of souls, doesn't he? He does, and I think maybe that's why the poem is so successful, because he's obsessed with the idea of meeting of souls and destiny and happenstance, Mm. and it comes up in his novels. It comes up in his early poem, Hap. Um, So I feel like because the, the poem is sort of so close to his heart in terms of his themes, it yes. probably works better than most occasional poems. Yes, he's done that thing of turning it into something that really matters to him. Absolutely. And that, that comes across, doesn't it? Uh, well, well, we'll get into all of this in more detail after we've heard the poem. But there are, as we said, quite a few archaic words and words that we use slightly differently now. For example, in line three, there's that phrase, stilly couches she, and she refers to the to the ship itself. Um, what about couches? I've never really been able to make anything of couches, stilly couches. What do you make of that? So the dictionary definition is to lay oneself down for rest or sleep. And I do think, we'll talk about this later, that there may be some sort of sexual undertones in the poem. So in a solitude of the sea, I think those next bits can both be read sort of in parenthesis. In a solitude of the sea, stilly couches she. That's how I read it. Right, yeah. Um, um, And then in line six, we've got thrid. I think that's a kind of strange past tense of thread, to thread a needle, like threaded. So you have these steel chambers um, that used to contain the coal right and the fires right and then now it's just these cold currents of ocean threading through these chambers these steel chambers and creating a kind of rhythm that's a little bit like the thrumming of a lyre a lyre being 
an instrument from ancient Greek that's sort of harp-like or guitar-like. Okay, that's really useful. Um, Just a couple more, I think, might be useful. So in line eight, the sort of second line of the third stanza, um, over the mirrors meant to glass the opulent. So he's using glass as as a verb there, isn't he? Yes, he is. So I think glass in that context means to reflect the opulent. Yeah. So, right, so all the the rich passengers on the Titanic could look at themselves in the mirror and be glassed or be reflected in these mirrors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then a couple more. So moving down to stanza five, line 15. It's just that phrase, uh, if people aren't familiar, might trip us up. What does this vain gloriousness down here? Yeah. So that's a question the fish are asking, presumably, or that's how he's mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. making it. What does this vaingloriousness down here? So vainglorious, you know, as in vanity. And, mm. and so the fish are asking, what is all of this doing down here? <laughs> all of this human vaingloriousness yeah. doing down here? Yeah. So we would actually say that now. What is it doing? Right. It says what does. And then... Um, most people will know one meaning of the word in the final line, consummation, usually now is, again, connected with, with sex, isn't it? Yes, with marital sex, right? The, yeah, the marriage was consummated. Specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose in a more general sense, it means the point at which something is completed or sort of brought to summation. Indeed. Okay, well, let's have a listen to the poem now. The Convergence of the Twain In a solitude of the sea, deep from human vanity, and the pride of life that planned her, stilly couches she. Steel chambers, late the pyres of her salamandrine fires, cold currents thrid, and turn to rhythmic tidal lyres. Over the mirrors, meant to glass the opulent, The sea-worm crawls, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels, in joy designed to ravish the sensuous mind, lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim, moon-eyed fishes near gaze at the gilded gear and query, what does this vaingloriousness down here? Well, while was fashioning this creature of cleaving wing, the imminent will that stirs and urges everything, prepared a sinister mate for her so gaily great, a shape of ice for the time far and dissociate. And as the smart ship grew in stature, grace and hue, in shadowy, silent distance grew the iceberg too. Alien they seemed to be, no mortal eye could see the intimate welding of their later history, or sign that they were bent by paths coincident on being anon twin halves of one august event. Till the spinner of the years said, Now, and each one hears, and consummation comes, and jars two hemispheres. The Convergence of the Twain by Thomas Hardy, read by our reader, Andrew Stevenson. 
Okay, well, just to look a bit at the technical side of things uh, briefly. So you've said that the poem consists of 11 stanzas of three lines each, which uh, you've said we call tercets. And then just looking at the poem, that so the last line in each stanza is about twice the length, isn't it, of um, the two lines that precede it. Um, and that goes all the way through. And then what, what about the rhyme pattern? What's going on there? Well, the rhyme pattern is each of the three lines in each tercet rhyme. Mm -hmm. So the rhyme shifts from one tercet to another. Um, but in addition to each of the N-words rhyming in each tercet, you often have in this poem um, a lot of internal rhyme too. So it's very decorative and opulent rhyme, kind of like the ship, you know, it like yes. sort of the, the rhyme I think echoes the opulence of the ship in some yeah, ways. Yeah, they're like those jewels, aren't they, in stanza four? The rhymes are like the jewels. Yes, yes, they are. And I think the fact that it's in tercets, these three line stanzas is really interesting. And you point out the fact that one line is much longer than the others. I think the poem is in tercets because, okay, the poem is about two entities, mm -hmm. a Titanic and an iceberg. Mm -hmm. So one might think initially that couplets would best suit mm. the poem because it's a poem with two oppositional elements that are at the same time converging or even conjugal in some mm -hmm. way, right? Um, but I would argue that there's like a third element in the poem and the third element is named in line 18. Um, Hardy calls ah, it imminent yeah. will or what we might call destiny. Um, that is such an excellent point. I really like that idea for why he might have arranged it in tercets. Um, yes, please go on. Well, I think couplets would have been kind of a, a very conventional choice for something like this. Um, and yet there is, as we discussed, this incredible interest in destiny and um, destiny of souls and fate. And I think that that element is so important that it takes up twice the space of the other two lines you know which which might be yeah kind of simplistically symbolized one line by the ship and one line by the iceberg and then this longer line that mm -hmm. represents this this sort of abstract element what um hardy says in tess of the d'urbervilles the president of the immortals yes referring to aeschylus's play prometheus bound it's that supreme deity who is responsible for all of our misfortunes yeah and irresistible i mean impossible irresistible. to resist yeah absolutely yeah. yeah um fantastic well i wondered if you would mind talking us through the poem uh, sort of paraphrasing i mean he, he begins by imagining where the titanic is now doesn't he in that first stanza Right, the first stanza where we talked about the stilly couch is she. Mm. So, okay, the, this ship was made with the pride of life, and now mm -hmm. it's living at the bottom of the sea. And then he describes these steel chambers that used to contain fire from the coal that energized the boat. Yeah, like the boiler room. The yeah, boat. like the boiler room, yeah. right, that's now deep beneath the sea with the cold currents going through it. Stanza three as we discussed, has the mirrors in it, the mirrors that reflect the opulent mm -hmm. passengers on the ship. Um, and then there's this amazing third line yes. in stanza three, the sea worm crawls grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. So it's sort of a, a sea creature that I would say is analogous to the worm's you know, of the of the yes, grave, yes. you know. Crawling um, through the eye sockets, sort of. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, like this destiny or the president of the immortals, it's dumb and indifferent, you know, indifferent to human suffering. And then the fourth stanza, um, and it might be interesting to point out that the stanzas are mainly self-contained, but sometimes enjammed into Mm -hmm. the next section. They run over, We might at some time talk about why there are 11, um, as opposed to some other number. Well, why, Um, why don't you comment on that now? Okay, so... I thought about this and I was thinking, why 11? And each stanza is labeled with a Roman numeral and you have Roman numerals on a clock. Um, Yes. So I guess a full round of the clock is from 12 to 12, right? One to 12. And this clock, if you think of it as a clock, only gets to 11. So it's like a passage that doesn't quite reach its destination. It's broken off before the completion. Oh, that's giving me goosebumps. I think that's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Do yeah. you agree with it? I don't know. That's just me making that up. <laughs> well, I, t- I, you know, I think, who knows for sure, but I think Hardy is such a careful poet that it could well play a part, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, I mean, as a poet yourself, we, we know that sometimes we do these things uh, subconsciously. And so things that are absolutely intended by our subconscious minds, you know, sometimes do appear without our conscious rendering of them. Yeah, of course. Very well said. So I'll just continue with the sections. Please, yeah. In stanza four, you have the jewels that are designed in joy. And then now they have no light to catch them because they're now in the dark at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. It's great that alliteration, isn't it, in the last line, stanza four, bleared oh, yes. and black and blind. Right. Yeah. Like that last line of stanza four is yeah. full of so much opulence, lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. It's a beautiful yeah. line. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So stanza five personifies these fishes under the water who are gazing at all this gilded gear and the jewels and everything and wondering what's all this doing down here yeah something very foreign to them indeed um and it's foreign partly because on a surface level there's this sense of humans overreaching themselves isn't there of of hubris and of the sea as a place very separate from that so these fishes are swimming near and thinking what you know what the hell is it doing down here what is it (laughs) absolutely yeah so stanza six like attempts to answer that question to the fish Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Hardy <laughs> yeah. starts starts the stanza, while this creature of cleaving wing, which I assume is the Titanic, uh, was being made, mm-hmm. the imminent will, this sort of destiny that stirs and urges everything. And now we've got our first enjambment, as you say, our first sort of run over. Our first run over between two separate sections. So we've got a run over into section seven. And then God or the president of the immortals, whoever mm. um, prepared a sinister mate. So we have this idea of sex and marriage again, um, mm. prepared a sinister mate for her, for her, the Titanic, mm-hmm. so gay and so great, mm-hmm. right? And a shape of the, the mate that has been planned for her is this shape of ice, an iceberg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this iceberg that was far away and associate, like this iceberg that should have nothing to do with the Titanic. There's no yeah. reason why these two things should ever meet. Should ever come together, yeah. I love that uh, cleaving wing, actually, because it, I see this sort of blade, the, the prow of the ship, the wing sort of cleaving the water in two as it passes through. 
Um, and cleaving is an interesting adjective because it means two opposite things, yes. right? It means to clutch or hold on to something, but it also means to divide or cut something, right? So it's the opposite. Um, and in stanza eight, this smart, I suppose in the British sense of fashionable, <laughs> the mm. smart ship mm. grew in stature, grace, and hue. In shadowy, silent distance grew the iceberg too. So the two, <laughs> so the sinister. Two ent- yeah, it's sinister. The two are growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in stanza nine, he reiterates that they're alien to each other. They're dissociate. You know, as mm-hmm. as he said in stanza seven, right? That different to each other as they seem to be. No mortal eye, no person could ever have predicted the intimate welding of their later history. So Yeah, now that's interesting, isn't it? That intimate yeah. welding. Again, it's got those sexual overtones. And also the word welding, you know, makes me think a little bit of wedding. Um, yes, absolutely. I always misread it as wedding. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And I think Hardy is probably happy with that. <laughs> yes, I would think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the intimate welding. And welding kind of goes back to the original making of it as well, mm-hmm. of the ship. The intimate welding of their later history and the idea that they're kind of immortally bound. You know, when you weld something, that's a quite a permanent fixing. Yes, yeah. So this poem was written in 1912. Another huge event happened in his life, or happened in his personal life that year, and that was the death of his wife, Emma. So although she hadn't died at the time of the sinking of the Titanic, do you think that her presence and the disappointment that we know Hardy felt or both of them felt in the marriage is um, behind some of this poem? Well, um, you know, as, as we discussed vis-a-vis the 11 stanzas, we, we just can never know. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he is just interested in that theme in his other writing. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes you you get a better sense of what is preoccupying a poet by reading more of what they yeah. wrote. And I was just thinking about in Jude the Obscure, there is the sense of, of marriages or relationships that are disappointing in some way. And in Jude the Obscure, you have this Jude character who reminds one very much of Hardy in some ways. Um, he's a stone mason, and Hardy's father was a stone mason, and Hardy studied architecture. Mm-hmm. And he really, really wants to go to Christminster, which is basically Oxford. That's mm-hmm. his life's dream. And, but he's prevented from doing so because he meets this woman, Arabella. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Arabella is like the iceberg. <laughs> like he's the Titanic trying to get to Oxford or Christminster. Mm-hmm. And Arabella is like the iceberg that thwarts that dream. So it's definitely an obsession of his, isn't it? Um, and I yes. mean, just in the language, apart from anything else, we've got that stilly couches, she, that we talked about in line three. You know, and I, I do think that could be read as something to do with sex, lying I down. I think so too, as yes. If, as if ready for sex, you know. Or, mm-hmm. And then what else have we got in that vein? We've got we've got ravish in line 11. Uh, you, you mentioned the word mate at the start of stanza seven. Sensuous mind, yeah. that's in line 11. Um, the intimate welding that we've just talked about. Right, um, cleaving. Yeah, and I suppose more than anything, maybe the consummation. In the yeah, absolutely, the consummation. That's not an accident that he uses no. that word. I mean, you know, it, it sounds almost like a description of some earth-juddering orgasm to me. I actually <laughs> think that's really astute. I really think that there is something orgasmic about this collision. 
That line, and consummation comes and jars two hemispheres. I think it's definitely there. Mm -hmm. So, Catherine, you talked about the imminent will that is capitalised in stanza six. So I looked that phrase up and it is specifically linked with Hardy, isn't it? And it, it refers to an indifferent force, I suppose, that defines our, our fates and very often ruins our lives. So I guess you could say he was a pessimist on this this subject. Well, imminent will, I'm glad you brought that up because I also looked it up and it's also linked to Schopenhauer. And ah. I don't know Schopenhauer's work very much, but he didn't believe humans have free will. And it, it is indeed very pessimistic. Mm. Um, yeah. This poem also makes me think a bit of those origin stories about how sexual attraction began. Um, there's Plato's parable of the divided hermaphrodites. So he thought that humans began in three forms. There was the male form and the female form and then the sort of hermaphrodite form who ended up being very powerful. And so Zeus cut them in half and the males became homosexual and so did the all females. And then the hermaphrodites put all their energy into trying to find their other halves. Um, <laughs> That also reminds me of that poem by Ted Hughes called A Childish Prank. I might just read the middle of that poem because it seems relevant. Uh, so it's from Crow and it says, He, meaning Crow, he bit the worm, God's only son, into two writhing halves. He stuffed into man the tail half with the wounded end hanging out. He stuffed the head half head first into woman and it crept in deeper and up to peer out through her eyes, calling its tail half to join up quickly, quickly, because, oh, it was painful. Crow is my favourite of Hughes' collections. Yeah, and that's me too. really beautiful. Yeah. It's so raw. And uh, Hardy, yeah, I, I have read that he was influenced by Plato because he was completely self-taught mm, and mm. he read a lot of Plato and the classics in general. And I think that he probably was thinking about that theory of, of the male half looking endlessly and blowing around, looking for the female half until yeah. they can join. Yeah. But I think Hardy's view of the joining isn't a kind of idealized one that Plato had in mind. I think Hardy is quite pessimistic about that joining. Yeah. Okay. Is there more that you would like to say? Um I can just sum up what I think the poem is about. Yeah. Um, the poem is about the strange and horrible marriage of two entities that should not have crossed paths, the mm -hmm. Titanic and the iceberg resulting in the Titanic's tragic sinking. But it's also about destiny and about pride preceding a great fall and vanity. Yeah. Well, I think that's an excellent summary um, and a good place to end this first part, Catherine. Thank you so much for talking to us about one of your favourite poems, The Convergence of the Twain by Thomas Hardy. So the Hardy poem that I've chosen is a bit shorter than yours. It's 16 lines, so just a little longer than a sonnet. Um, and Catherine, I was so delighted when you told me you wanted to talk about Hardy because he's a poet that I love and admire. So thank you for that. Oh, good. I'm so glad it was a, a good choice for you. <laughs> um, so this poem is from around the same period as the Titanic poem. And we don't like to bring in too much context. It's not always helpful, um, mainly because poems can stand on their own feet without context. 
But here I do think it's useful to mention that both of the poems uh, first appeared in the same volume, Satires of Circumstance. And that volume contained a section called Poems of 1912 to 13. And these were poems that were written in the wake of his wife Emma's death. Um, and I think the interesting thing about them is that the couple had been estranged for some years, in fact, before Emma died, um, with Emma withdrawing to rooms up in the attic. Um, but then when she died, Hardy experienced this huge outpouring of grief and longing, which resulted in this magical group of elegiac poems. But it really wasn't a longing for the woman who just died, but for some sort of earlier incarnation of her, wasn't it? Yes, an earlier incarnation or even a kind of imagined incarnation, yeah. you know, like some idealised incarnation yes. of her. yeah. Joseph Brodsky said that the great thing about that uh, group of poems, quotes, is that they are not in memory of his wife, but in memory of his bride. And then I would add to that, you know, what you've just added is that an idealised version of his bride. But I guess when we first meet someone, we are in some sense all meeting an idealised version. Absolutely. So it's interesting to see how different the tone of this second poem is. So let's have a listen to it now. But uh, before we do that, I don't think there are many words that need explaining in this one. Maybe I'll pick out a couple of things. Uh, mead in line 10, travelling across the wet mead to me here. That's just an archaic word for meadow. And then one wistlessness in the next line, line 11. So one means dim or, or faint. And wistless is a word that's not very often used at all. Uh, so we're familiar with wistful, meaning, you know, full of yearning uh, or melancholy. The OED says that wistless means inattentive or unobservant. So the feeling is that the woman in the poem is there, but she, she doesn't notice the speaker. So one wistlessness, a sort of faint and inattentive manner. May I ask a question about a word I didn't quite understand in the poem? Sure. Um, line 15. What does thorn mean in this context? Wind oozing thin through the thorn from Norward. Well, I just took that to mean hawthorn. Uh, so there are a lot of hawthorn hedges in Dorset where they lived. Um, and the wind does come sort of oozing through. And this is a northerly wind, so from Norward, from, from northward. Mm. Um so it's sort of forcing its way through the hawthorn bushes. I, I think that's what I always assumed it was. Right. Okay. In America, we, we just wouldn't use thorn as a shorthand for hawthorn. That makes absolute sense. Thanks yeah. for explaining that. Well, I hope I'm right about it. And if I'm not, I'll take it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's have a listen to the poem now. Woman much missed. How you call to me, call to me, saying that now you are not as you were when you had changed from the one who was all to me, but as at first when our day was fair. Can it be you that I hear? Let me view you then, standing as when I drew near to the town where you would wait for me, yes, as I knew you then, even to the original air-blue gown. Or... Is it only the breeze in its listlessness 
travelling across the wet mead to me here, you being ever dissolved to one wistlessness, heard no more again, far or near. Thus I, faltering forward, leaves around me falling, wind oozing thin through the thorn from Norwood, and the woman calling. Thomas Hardy's The Voice, read by Andrew Stevenson. So I'm just going to take us through very briefly, stanza by stanza, and um, to keep this short, it's going to be a bit of a a whistle-stop tour because you were way too interesting talking about the uh, first poem there, Catherine. Thank you. So the first stanza, as I see it, is all about sound. Uh, The speaker is imagining that he can hear this woman calling to him and there's that lovely echo in the first line call to me call to me and then in lines two to three the next two lines it takes I think a little bit of mental agility to get your mind around this so it's saying that now you are not as you were when you had changed Um, it's a kind of double negative isn't it you are not as you were when you had changed from the one who was all to me. The implication is that she is as she was before she changed from the person who meant everything to him uh, when our day was fair. Um, so when they were happy and in the first full flush of love, he's really wanting to sort of turn time back here. And as you say again, to an idealised time that perhaps never actually existed. I think so. So I suppose we could say that the woman much missed is not just calling from the past, but from the distant, idealised past. Yeah, that idealised period in a romantic relationship when the oxytocin is (laughs) in in full flow. (laughs) So if that first stanza is about sound, in stanza two we get the visual, uh, can it be you that I hear? Well, you know, if so, let me view you then. And he wants a very specific view of her, doesn't he? he? He wants to view her as she was when he used to visit her town where she would wait for him. Uh, and not even just that, but dressed in a certain way, right down to the detail of that air blue gown that she used to wear. Yeah, he's being quite prescriptive, isn't he? He's being prescriptive, um, but also descriptive in this way that I think Hardy can be at his best, you know, like that image of the blue gown I really see her I find it very very evocative yes he's really sort of brought her before our eyes at that point hasn't he so then the third stanza begins with an important word or and now he's considering the possibility that the voice of the title might just be the sound of the breeze and I think of the breeze here as a sort of dissolver of both the sound in the first stanza and the vision in the second. Um, you being ever dissolved to one wistlessness. Uh, so that's the vision bit. And then heard no more again. So the woman seems to be fading on every level at that point. Uh, and then the the fading propels the poem into the final stanza where the rhythm suddenly goes a bit haywire. Um, we haven't mentioned the rhythm yet. So in the first three stanzas, all the lines have these strong four beats. We were talking at the start of the podcast about those um, strong four beat lines. And it's mainly in dactyls. And you, with your Greek heritage, Catherine, will be well aware um, dactylos in ancient Greek is the word for finger. 
yeah, yeah. finger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why a dactyl is shaped like a finger. So it's one long and then two short right. bones. So you get da diddy da diddy da diddy da diddy. Woman much missed how you call to me, call to me. Um, but then in this final stanza, all of that goes out of the window, doesn't it? I think that's very much intentional, do you think? Oh, yes, absolutely. He, he's not going to shift a rhythm unless he means to, because he's got such a good ear. No, exactly. It's yeah. not an accident. Yeah. Uh, so there's this complete interruption of the rhythm. And I think it really helps you picture this old man, a widower now, kind of faltering forward, as the poem says, on his own. And those Fs are like stuttering sounds themselves, aren't they? The f f. Um, like fail as well. That's a word that's not in there. Yeah. But... But yeah. it almost is, because we've got falling, haven't we? Leaves mm. around me falling. And then those first three lines of the last stanza are very, I don't know if negative is the right word, but the mood of them is um, quite depressed, isn't it? Mm. It, um, it is grieving or, or depressed, yeah. Yeah, especially that penultimate line, the wind oozing thin through the thorn from Norwood. There's lots of alliteration in this poem. Mm-hmm. So Norwood meaning from the north. So that's the coldest type of wind um, in England. It's so bleak. (laughs) Yeah, it is really bleak. Um, It just seems a poem in the depth of grief and regret. Yeah, yeah. But then in the the final line, and I I just think this ending is genius. Um, So we talked about the word or at the start of stanza three. And then that changes here to and. So it's like he doesn't have to choose whether it's the voice of his beloved or just the wind. It can be both of them. Yes. Uh, Yeah, there's something moving about that. Yeah. Uh, And that's where we leave him. And I think it is very moving. It reminds me a little bit of the end of another Hardy poem, The Oxen, Um, that sort of belief against all odds. So in that poem, the speaker's lost his, his faith. But he says that he would still be willing to to follow someone who wanted to persuade him otherwise. Um, He says, um, I would go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. Actually, I sort of, I was going to say adapted, adopted, stole (laughs) uh, that last line for one of my poems, which echoes Hardy. Um, Mm. Which of your poems was it? It's a soft edge read of light, yeah. And I, as you say, as so many people have who admire Hardy, they sort of, it's his philosophy as well as his, um, you know, his music and all the rest of it. There's something very concise and precise about the way he thinks. Um, yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a similar feel to the ending here that um, he's going to keep the faith, if you like. Yeah, it's an ending of open possibilities. And in potential communication, so calling is a type of communication. So yes. that's a type of connection between people. Yes, keeping that channel of communication open. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great way to end this episode of Poetry Break. Catherine, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Um, you've been really excellent. Thank you so much for sparing the time. Thank you, Julia, for inviting me. I really, really enjoyed revisiting these poems with you. The theme music for this podcast was performed on trumpet by James Copus. Thanks for listening.
And that concludes episode 373, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copas. Coming up in episode 374, in Location and the Writer, Amanda Mitchison visits Coleridge's cottage and Julia Crouch promenades on Brighton Beach. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.